0: hey guys welcome to tales of recovery this is your host greece alvis and today i am with my dear friend tamara falikov we met in high school my argentinian jewish friend and i was a mexican sort of catholic kind of confused girl but we had a great time talking and discussing and always being um kind of like rebels but I just loved hanging out with you and your family because you guys are always like my smartest family. Oh, they actually talk about important things and still have fun and are great loving people. But um, so, yeah, I'm very grateful for my friendship with you, Tamara.
1: Thank you, Ganesh.
0: <laughs> it's so great to be here. <laughs> and so I want to talk about the uh, tells of Recovery is when you go through... It's not necessarily recovery of alcoholism or drug addiction, even though we do talk about that, but it's really when you go through something traumatic, uh, which we all do, that's his life. And how going through this process of just kind of walking through the pain or whatever difficulty life brings you, and how in the end you recover something from that experience that creates a richness in your life, and then, then you actually offer this beneficial presence to the world um, through that experience, if that makes sense. And so today I want to talk about uh, when you lost your father mm-hmm. to cancer. Mm-hmm. We were teenagers, right? And right. And... Um, you talked about a, an amazing opportunity that you had in Cuba. Uh, I'm reading right here on your, on your computer. This is my experiences in Cuba as a medical traveler, a young community activist, and a study abroad faculty member and scholar. Because you are an amazing film um, professor, and Thank I'll you. just let you say exactly what your title okay. kind of is because I know you're like a pretty badass. So let me
1: just. <laughs> <laughs> First, of all, that you're too kind. So I'm so excited to be here. I have um, been exploring this topic recently, reminiscing about the experience I went through. Uh, my father passed away when I was 18 years old, and so this was a time when we're On the cusp of adulthood, we're still confused. I was the eldest child, I had two younger sisters, and my mom was doing her best to try to help my father. My father was a cardiologist, he was a caregiver, he loved his patients, he had such a big heart. Immigrant from Argentina, from Buenos Aires, and when he got ill, it was really difficult because we couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, and it turned out that he had a very rare form of cancer. And so my dad, instead of just being a typical patient, didn't want to be a patient. He wanted to fight. He wanted to find a solution. And so he looked all over the world for doctors who were doing research on the kind of rare form of cancer that he had, which was the cancer of the small intestine. He found an oncologist in Amsterdam, so they spent time there. And then they found out, my mom and he found out, about a clinical trial taking place in Havana, Cuba. Now, to set the scene, this is 1987, this is still Cold War, U.S., the Soviet Union hadn't fallen yet, that was just about to happen in 1988, 91, Berlin Wall Falls, so... At the time, at 17 years old, I felt pretty worldly because my parents were immigrants and I knew um, about other cultures and could speak another language, but I was definitely an American in the sense that I had thought of Cuba as this rather scary place that Americans weren't allowed to travel to. And so when my parents said, no, 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 you know, dad is gonna go to Houston, he's going to MD Anderson Hospital, he's gonna have a surgery to remove the tumor, And we're going to ask the U.S. government for permission to take the tumor to Havana. And Tamara, you're going to go with your mom and you're going to deliver this tumor. Yeah. And this was, yes. And I thought, okay, wow, I hope they don't put me in jail. Like, this is really freaky. Am I going to see a demon with horns when I arrive? I really had no clue at all. I just saw what was on the media and I knew about the Cold War and we're told, by the U.S. government, actually, yes, you may travel to Cuba, but you may not spend the night, you may not stay, you may not spend money. And this is because there's a law on the books that still exists called the 1912 Trading with the Enemy Act. So we still have this terrible relationship with the country where you may visit, but you may not spend money. So my mother and I take this tumor. We had to rent a little Cessna. I mean, we were so privileged that we could even do this. But when we did arrive... We were told, you may not stay. So we went, I immediately was whisked to a hospital, seafoam green walls of the hospital, not like our U.S. hospitals. They take out white blood cells from me. I'm feeling nervous. Then, yeah, so the reason I went was to try to help my dad with these white blood cells. And then my mother brought the tumor. So that was our jobs. Then they take me and they introduce me to my mom with these doctors And that was a really pivotal moment for me because the doctors looked at me and said, Tamara, you and your mom must be so stressed out. You know, your dad is very ill and you guys are not even allowed to see our beautiful beaches in Havana. We have gorgeous beaches, not necessarily in Havana, but near Havana. Varadero is the place where the beautiful beaches are. And I thought to myself, what? You have beautiful beaches in in Cuba and I cannot see them. The U.S. government is not allowing my mother and I, who are so stressed out, from seeing these speeches because of this political law where we can't even stay and learn. And this was a spark for me because I thought, wait a minute, these people are helping my dad. And so that stuck with me. I thought, boy, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm not being given the information that I need to make a decision about this. Hmm. I wonder. I wonder. That so wow. maybe that's a bit of critical thinking that you get as a 17-year-old. You realize there's something that's wrong. There's a little cognitive dissonance going on. So, we didn't stay and that was that, but I never forgot that. We had 6 hours. We had 6 hours whisked to the Seafoam Green Hospital, whisked to the laboratory with the doctors who were so kind. And by the way, we could have done this clinical study in the US, but it would have cost $30,000 for my father to join. And frankly, you know, with so many medical bills, no, that was not a possibility. That was not tenable. In Cuba, by contrast, it was free. So that's where I learned that in Cuba, the government, the revolutionary government, whether people like it or not, healthcare was a right, not a privilege. Healthcare is free, education was free, and it turned out to be the most literate country of its GDP. You know, it's a poor country. They have tobacco, sugar, and tourism. The The housekeepers in the hotels write beautiful notes in English with perfect cursive. These are incredibly educated people. And that was very interesting to me. And I thought, this is such a fascinating culture, and the music and the culture and the, the film, I need to know more, and yet I'm not allowed to. So, of course, being the little rebels that we were when we were in high school, I wanted to learn more. I was not about to let the U.S. government tell me that I couldn't visit. So, one year See later... <laughs> Exactly. One year later, unfortunately, my dad does pass away. He, he, we do what we can. He dies. I'm there with him. They t- my parents tell me, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to go away to college. You have to be home. And at the time, I was not happy about that. A little bit selfish, but I realized they made the right choice. I was there by my dad's side. And the following year, I go away to college. I'm working at a restaurant in North Beach, San Francisco, And I see a flyer and the flyer says, humanitarian caravan, people to people mission to Cuba. Come with pastors for peace. And let's make a statement about how the U.S. government doesn't want us to have any communication with the Cuban people. And I'm thinking, "Okay, look how the Cuban people try to help my dad. I'm so curious about this country. I'm learning a little bit, but I don't know a lot. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Cuba with a caravan and I'm going to tell my dad's story. And what was so interesting is that people listened to my story and it gave them hope that there were folks in the world trying to help cure cancer. But I also noticed that they all wanted my story to end on a happy note. They all wanted me to say, so was your dad cured? Did they help your father? Is he still alive? And the fact is, no he wasn't, he didn't survive. And so that was very hard for me, but it made me stronger. It made me stronger that I had to kind of realize that people don't want to confront death. They don't want to hear that it's not a happy ending, but they need to know the reality. So it was an incredible journey because I go on this caravan, go around the country, tell my dad's story and then eventually, with all the humanitarian aid, we land in the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Center. So, as much as we don't want to know about Cuban culture, the Cubans know about us. And they know about civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King, who did amazing things. And the Cubans valued that. So, when we were the first group of Americans to land, so we were the first caravan. There ended up being 50 caravans after. There's still our caravans going, there's still no progress, sadly many years later okay what 30 years later nonetheless we arrive in this peace center and who speaks but the supposed devil himself fidel castro <laughs> and this, is 1992. this this was now in 1992 so some time had passed i was a little wrong on the um chronology this i had finished college it had been a few years since my dad passed away and then i was there in 1992 meeting fidel castro shaking his hands. And having a chance to really go and talk to people, talk to the Cubans, learn more. And at the time, I thought, I want to do something with cinema. I want to teach people about Latin American culture through film. It's an easy way. We're so televisual. I'm going to come back to the U.S., I'm going to show films with subtitles, and I'm going to help interpret what the culture is like in Cuba, in Argentina, where my family's from. So I go to Cuba with the caravan. I leave the caravan people who don't really speak Spanish. No offense. And I head off and I meet Cubans. And I have the time of my life. And I love the culture. People are so warm. They have nothing. They give you the shirt off their back. And I think to myself, I want Americans to know about this country. Because there is a media blockade in this country about what the socialist revolutionary society is doing. Now, Do I think it's a perfect utopian society? By all means, no. Am I sensitive when I have Cuban-American kids in my class whose parents live in Miami and they're staunchly anti-Castro? Of course I'm sympathetic. Their land was expropriated by the government to be more democratic and there's more income distribution. But if you're a rich person, it's going to suck for you. So I was very conscious and sensitive. I'm not going to be this militant person in my class. I'm going to try to show different points of view. The point is, let's have a dialogue. Let's learn. So I feel like as much as I had this painful situation, very unusual, weird dealing with the US government, six hours, it opened a door. It opened a window for me. I saw something that my friends in San Diego did not see, didn't have an opportunity to see. I had a chance to talk to people because I have this other language skill. So I'm always trying to emphasize to my students, because I am a professor of film studies, Latin American film studies, my students who don't speak another language, I encourage them, learn another language. It's gonna help you understand more how people feel and think and what their culture is like and how it's different from yours. We think that this is the best country in the world and that we don't need to travel and see the world. But frankly, our country can be better if we can learn from other people. And we can exchange information, and the Cubans can learn from us, and they can learn from us. It's a horizontal relationship. It's not a vertical one. So for me, having that chance to go to Cuba, meet people, then I took that knowledge, and I came back home, and I met a professor at UC San Diego who knew about Cuban cinema, and she was my mentor— And I constructed a class, I taught about it, I tried to be very um, historical and empirical and not political in the sense that, again, we learn about propaganda from many sides. And then ultimately, over time, I took students. I took students to Havana. They went crazy. They loved it. One guy brought baseballs and baseball bats because he loved the baseball players from Cuba. It's such a big sport. And the, the team players from Havana and other cities that have come to the U.S. He
0: brought them to Cuba? When
1: you yes. He went and gave away. them, yes, he gave them away to, to students. Another student of mine brought a flute because she knew that they had free musical education for students. Um, they do so much about, culture is very democratic there. So there may be a bricklayer who works in construction in the day and at night he's a ballet dancer. Ballet is not elite. Um, Classical music is available and accessible to everyone. So she brought a flute to donate to a music school. They just don't have resources, but they do what they can. And so I just had so much fun with those students and they still to this day tell me, wow, Tamara, thank you for taking me to this country. I had such an eye-opening experience. So I think that's, for me, the biggest takeaway is You have this traumatic experience, but can you find the silver lining? Can you learn things like, for example, how to talk about death, how to confront it? So I started working in the Bay Area with HIV infection. Um, I was an AIDS caregiver. That was happening at the time. AIDS was fairly new, and no one knew about it, no one wanted to deal with it. And it's like, look, my dad died. I know what death is like. I'm going to work here. And the culture, I already mentioned that. Let's give people a chance to go to these countries and learn and see how that might change your perspective.
0: It's interesting how proximity changes everything, right? Nobody wants to talk about death until somebody really close to you dies. And and even then sometimes, you know, but the whole thing of you discovering Cuba and discovering it through kind of a journey of grief and of sorrow, right? I mean, That's right. right now you're talking about it so freshly, but, it's freshly a word. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my gosh. It's tomorrow. I better, I better say the right <laughs> words.
1: <laughs> I'm not going to correct people. They're Bilingual, my friends. you are my friends. Is that a word? <laughs> yes. That's a
0: word, too. <laughs> and so, just like, if somebody's going through it right now, you know, um, I would hope that they would be able to be encouraged by this, but maybe you could say... What helped you through, like, when you were right there in the process of trying to get these um, new, t- new tests to maybe help your dad? Like, what did that feel like? Or if, like, a, say there's a 17-year-old person listening to this, or somebody who's in the middle of losing their loved one.
1: Well, I was very scared. I mean, it was very um, uncomfortable. I was pushed out of my comfort zone. This is not something I wanted to do. I did it because my parents basically said, you need to help your dad. As I said, I was not your very um, kind, gentle, you know, first daughter, eldest daughter. I had uh, some rebellion issues. I wanted to do things my way, and I was going to go away to college, and they told me, no, you can't go. And, you know, in looking back, I think to myself, my goodness, could you have just taken a minute to be empathetic to your dad? But no, I didn't, because I was a teenager, and teenagers want to do what they want to do, so I'm not going to lie to you. This was a big, difficult step for me, but I went through it, and the cool thing is that I realized that something was wrong with this picture, Um, You know, when I was in sixth grade, we studied about the peaceful Tassadai people, these Stone Age people from the Philippines that didn't have a word for war, and they were quote-unquote primitive. And I studied them, and then two weeks later, there was a news article that said it was all a sham. They actually were dressing up as Stone Age people by the Minister of Culture of the Philippines to try to get some kind of, I don't know, world recognition or something. So when little things happen in your life that don't quite make sense. I think it's a teaching moment. You wake up and you think, wait a minute, something's wrong here, I don't buy this. And so I just think that as much as you're in a difficult position, be awake, be aware, try to help the situation, think critically, try to learn something from it. What is the takeaway? Even if a terrible thing happens, I don't say things like, it happened for a reason, but I say, there's got to be something you can learn that can make your life better. You know, you try to find the silver lining. Otherwise, it's depressing. And I'll tell you something. When my dad passed away, this was also something that was really interesting and profound for me. People couldn't say anything. They couldn't come in over to me. We felt really isolated as a family. It was such a taboo. I think in Latin culture, there's more of a recognition about death as part of the life cycle. But I think in Anglo-Saxon culture where we live, people are afraid. They don't know what to say. They feel silly. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I don't know what to do. And I was telling Griselda earlier that my dad's um, office manager sent me a card, and I was so grateful that he sent me a card, but it was about Jesus and the angels. (laughs) And it was nice, but, you know, A, I'm Jewish. Frankly, it doesn't resonate. (laughs) Secondly... Okay. Well, that's how he deals with grief. Right. Interesting. So that was the other reason why I decided, no, I want to work with ill, terminally ill patients because I just want to be there for them and listen to them and not be scared of what's happening because guess what? We're all going to go. We're
0: all gonna die.
1: Exactly. So that gave me strength as a 17, 18 year old that I took with me. And You know, the other thing I'll say for people who are in a situation of grief, I will say that it took me a very long time to get over the initial, what I call like a black cloud hanging over me. I felt a sense of depression when my dad died because I was so young and my little sister was five and she didn't even get to know my dad. But at a certain point, I truly believe this. Let's say it took a year, year and a half, two years. I don't even know how long it took. But one day the black cloud, it just lifted It just lifted away. I didn't do anything. It was just this whole old adage, time heals all wounds. I think something happened over time where it just lifted and I could be myself again and I could move forward. And my mom did everything she could to keep us in our old house, to have stability. You know, she didn't want to radically move and do things that would make us feel discombobulated so she also helped a lot with making us feel that we were in a stable situation even though my dad who was the main breadwinner was gone Yeah,
0: that's just so powerful to hear how real um, well, pain and grief are and really what keeps it all together is the love right yes the love of the support of your mom. I mean, I'm about to start crying right now, but it's just seeing... Yes, I remember being at your house over for dinner, and we had to have this weird soup because your dad had cancer, and I was like, okay, this is actually kind of good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was a macrobiotic soup, probably, because oh, right. my dad tried all these things. Like That's another really good point, Griselda, is that my father also changed a lot. Like My dad was this very... Um, scientific, cardiologist, somewhat of an atheist, you know, not really spiritual, very rational guy, you know, very intellectual, played the piano, you know, this amazing guy. And yet, and yet when he started getting ill, he fortunately, I would argue, shifted his thinking and was more open-minded. He started doing meditation, he started learning about Buddhism, he started doing Hindu chakra points that I, you know, as part of meditation, he started a macrobiotic diet. He even looked at the teachings of Sai Baba, the spiritual guru that friends of his were interested in. And so it's that adage about, um, there are no atheists in the foxhole. My dad realized there's got to be more than, than what I'm doing. And he even put a mezuzah on our, um, door frame. and the mezuzah is a little, ritual object in judaism that is in the torah in the bible that says you will put this on put this on your doorpost to remind you that you are jewish and it has a little torah scroll in it and so it's like he embraced who he was and he was willing to explore and so it's neat that griselda remembers the soup that probably had seaweed in it and miso and i'll tell you the truth he did not like eating macrobiotic food and (laughs) he cried. I saw my dad cry. There was a bowl of strawberries and he couldn't even eat those. And he was sad. So my dad was not, um, as I said earlier, he was a fighter. And so he was quite emotional and he was quite angry sometimes. And, um, other parts of my family, people in my family were a bit critical of him that he wouldn't just accept it. But I, I respect that about my dad, that he just was honest about how he felt and that it was unfair that he was dying so young. He was only fifty-one. And um, he would also say to my family, I'm worried you're going to forget about me. Mm. And it's just like, how is that possible, Dad? Like, you've made such an impression, and I was only 18. So I'm, a, I'm an author, and I'm, I'm finishing my second book, so I haven't written like a million books or anything. <laughs> but as part of my job, I do research, and in both of my books, I dedicate it to my father mm. because I can't understand how he would think that we would forget him. He's made such a lasting impression. So I think also knowing how good my dad was as a caregiver and he would volunteer, I wanna carry that along in my heart to help other people.
0: Um, It's so interesting how death brings so much more meaning to life, right? That's true. And I feel like sometimes avoiding talking about it or avoiding even thinking that that's gonna happen to us robs you of this emotional, just gratitude, and the knowing that what life does, what life offers, and that it's gonna end.
1: That's true. I appreciate you saying that, because you're right, we aren't very introspective about it. We don't want to talk about it. And so I I would also urge people who are dealing with the grieving process or have an ill family member, loved one, to think about, yeah, what did they bring to the world? How did they contribute, and how can you honor them after they're gone so their spirit can live on?
0: Yeah, it's so fast, you know, it goes by so fast. Well, thank you for hopping on here and, you know, talking about life and love and really what you're offering now to the world. I'm so grateful (laughs) that you're my friend that we met in this lifetime and that you're here on Tales of Recovery. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you guys next time.
1: Thank you, Griselda. This was such a pleasure for me.